The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Morning and welcome to the first Go Radio Business Show of 2022 with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hawk. I'm Don Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss the latest business headlines and get brilliant and free advice from the board. We're also joined this morning by Kenny Blair, co-founder and managing director of Buzzworks, and Stuart Patrick, chief executive of Glasgow's Chamber of Commerce. And as always, if you want free business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. So gentlemen, welcome back. I hope you both had a wonderful festive break. Are you feeling positive about the year ahead? Well, um, Happy New Year to everybody. And yeah, Happy, happy New, New year. year to our listener. And um, to yeah, the two of them. I think, I think this be, I don't know much about football as you all know, but this must be like the beginning of the season where you think your team can do it. So we're all positive at the beginning until the first ball is kicked. And I did, Willie, have a wee smile when Amanda Stavely, the lady who organised the Newcastle takeover when Cambridge beat them 1-0. And there's a picture of her hiding her face <laughs> sitting next to a Saudi Arabian investment. And I thought, thank goodness I wasn't involved in that deal. <laughs> well, that, that got even more interesting, Tom, because five minutes later after the final whistle, they decided that they were going to storm the dressing room. Oh, so really? her and the investors went right into the dressing room. Not By the way, not a good thing to do in football, I can say. So that probably went down like a lead balloon. So... Thankfully, not involved in football. But yes, I think um, it's a challenging year ahead, Donald, for sure. I think um, Simon Wolfson, Lord Wolfson, who runs Next, is a great commentator and he, and he writes really well. And Next's results were, were very good. But he kind of put together a, a question about inflation, which we know about here and obviously um, I won the bet with, with Willie there <laughs> right Willie had mm. oh, oh was that was that not true no, <laughs> no that, um, was that was, was that <laughs> no, I think I won the bet so indeed trying to forecast because we we sit down like every business all businesses out there and we try and forecast the year ahead and if in this consumer space there's quite a lot of headwinds facing us so Simon Wolfson puts it best and he was trying to say, right, when we're trying to forecast here, inflation is one of the things we're trying to work out, how much of it is transitory and how much of it is here to stay, how much of the pent-up demand was really because people have not been able to really go anywhere and I really hope that people can get a summer break this time so that takes money out of the UK economy the national insurance rise, tax rise coming in April, that's going to take money out of the consumer's pocket. Energy costs, my goodness, they're taking money out of the consumer's pocket. So there is quite a lot of headwinds. But as usual, I am optimistic. Good entrepreneurs understand their market and they find ways round about it. Good entrepreneurs get stuck in, they know their customer, and they find ways round about it. Well, Willie, Tom's mentioned inflation. Come on, you won that bet. Any new predictions for the year ahead, given the Bank of England just come out saying 
they're expecting it to hit 7%. Yeah. So where is, here's your wee challenge, where's inflation going to be by the end of the year? What's the highest it'll get to? And what's the highest for interest rates? Let's well, get your first bet right. of the year underway. Right. Well, I think it's interesting. It's obviously quite apparent, Tom, that Andrew barely listens to the show. <laughs> you know, so the head <laughs> so the head of the Bank of he England is, is, is uh, yeah. three months behind everything that I say about interest rates. <laughs> and it's interesting this week that they're now putting a target of 7%, which is more than double what they said just months mm. ago. So that should be worrying for, for everyone. But um, I'm always optimistic. But I've got to say that for the first time in, in many years... Um, I always sit down with my own senior management team just before Christmas. We have a board meeting. My guys fly in from from all over the world for the board meeting. And this is the first time in 10 years where, um, you know, we've generally been growing like maybe 10 or 12% a year. And we think if we grow by 2% next year, we'll have done well. Wow. Right, so there's no pressure on us to grow by ten percent or fifteen percent, but and it's all down to one thing: is that our business development guys can't get in front of people. So it's the travel really? restrictions. Wow. We're not getting in front of guys to talk about new contracts. I can tell you that people over the last eighteen months, where there's been big contracts coming to an end, they've been giving people a, a temporary extension. So people have been getting three months and three months and, you know, I know some contracts that have been actually, you know, elongated by 12 months, right? And just say, add it and add it and add it. So I think that, uh, to be honest with you, after the last 18 months, two years, I'll be delighted with that growth um, that coming. There's a lot of people out there struggling. There's a lot of people not going to grow. So, but in saying that, I'm still optimistic that I think some of the signs that we've seen this week that restrictions are going to get lifted. And I think the next time they get lifted, they're getting lifted for good. Right, they'll have to. Well, you're not giving me an answer on inflation and interest oh, I'll definitely. Oh, no, I'll definitely give you... I, I think that I'm still COVID. saying what I said last year, uh, that inflation, I think inflation will be beyond 7%. Andrew Bailey, if you're listening. Right. So, come on. so what's the... What what is the bet, Willie? Are you buying lunch this no, time? No, no, no. I won the last bet. So right, this is a okay. new bet. Okay. So what bet. do you think? <laughs> where do you think in right. this calendar year? So as as a good negotiator, I've let you go first. So I'm just <laughs> going to say it's going to be under seven. Okay. So we're so we're betting under and over here. That's right. Okay. Now, interest rates. The reason I say that though, Donald, is because inflation is really just um, supply and demand, and. Um, all of the things I talked about there are, are are deflationary because the consumer is getting money taken out their pocket in the UK. And I think if we're learning to live with COVID, which is the only way to do it, it's endemic now. Um, and the only way is to learn to live with it, which wasn't our First Minister's strategy before. I'm glad to say is coming round to this way of thinking and we said it on the show months ago we had people on who knew what they were talking about who said it, Professor Sir Christopher Evans therefore as supply chains get back to normal as factories get back to capacity then those are the transitory inflation and they should come back therefore I think under 7 and therefore I think you would normally use interest rates to control inflation I don't think you need to I think that would add to the misery um, because that 
would put more people's mortgages up, take even more money out of their pocket. Therefore, I think the Bank of England are going to be really quite tough on interest rates and it's a, it's a blunt instrument now putting up interest rates. So I think interest rates are going to stay below, what am I going to say, 1.5%. Oh, I would of take course, that bet. it also bet. impacts on the government servicing their debt oh, levels. Oh, well, I'm going for overs there. I'm <laughs> going for overs there, <laughs> definitely. I right. gave you that one, right. Willie. So he gave, gave me that one, so that's uh, another <laughs> that's couple of news. But, Don, something that you mentioned I think will be more critical this year and have, and a, have, have a, you know, a larger impact on and most of the population will be energy costs. I think nobody's yeah. got any idea what's happening here. Right, It's going to, it's going to go through the roof. And, and people who have been struggling at the moment are really going to struggle. So, so, so Willie, we sort it? I don't fully understand. what I, I know it's supply and demand, yeah. but, but what's actually happened in the energy market? Yeah. Because oil went to negative last year, mm-hmm. but we didn't see the energy price fall. Yeah. And now it's booming and it's hitting people right yeah. in the wallet. So what, yeah. what's actually happening? The, what's, what's happening is is that obviously there's loads of noises about you know Russia shutting the valve and no no gas coming to Europe, uh, energy prices are, are are going up. But you're absolutely right, right? There's no correlation when the when oil prices went down. Why did energy prices not go down? And the sad thing is that generally when prices for utilities go up, they never go back down. They never come back. They yeah. never go back down. So all of this uh, uh, windfall tax on the um, oil and gas. Should be on the utilities companies. Why can you yeah. tell us in one hand that your prices are going up, but your profits are skyrocketing? Right? There's no correlation in that. So I think that we're looking at the wrong place. If it's the utility companies that are putting up the prices, then why are we not looking at why that they are doing that? Well, they're not saying it's because the cost of the wholesale cost right. of the energy right. uh, is what's making it skyrocket. But that doesn't stack up if your then net profit goes through the roof. Well, if the profits go up. But what about windfall tax on the oil and gas companies? I read in a very um, quality newspaper, I think it was the Herald. Excellent. Last week. of the year, thank you. uh, Miami Herald. Mark. (laughs) (laughs) The newcomer Herald. And um, Mark Mark Williamson did an interesting piece about um, windfall taxes. And, you know, this is complicated. This is not straightforward. But, and we've said it in this show before, um, down in Ayrshire, we switched off Hunterson yeah. after 40-odd years and there's nothing to replace it. Yeah. And nuclear has got to be part of the mix. It's totally agree. just, this is long-term strategy, Willie. Yeah. But the other thing that you've talked about is insulating people's homes to so they use less energy. I, I don't think we can live in a world where we'll say, oh yeah, the price is going to come down. I think we've got to live in a world where we're saying we need to have a help people use less energy. And it's not heat pumps. We yeah. did that to death last it's year. It's definitely not a heat pump. But the insulation, yeah. all all the stuff you talked about, Willie, where's the strategy here? Yeah. Why are we not helping people with that? Yeah, and that's what we should be concentrating on, reducing people's usage. Um, bring you back to COVID and the restrictions. We're talking about some of it being eased and we are now seeing... Scotland moving away from the approach which said that we will eliminate the uh, virus to now that we will live with it. Is that the right move? And also, is it about time that there was a four nations approach or should we 
still act independently? I think we're too late for the Four Nations approach. I think we're coming to the end now of restrictions and I think the First Minister's hinted at that. The optimism for me really for 2022 is, is I believe within three months now we'll not be talking about restrictions at all. Right, and it's going to you know it's going to be herd immunity or whatever. But I think that uh, one of the positive signs is is that restrictions are going to come, and and they must, they absolutely must. People cannot take much more of this, especially businesses. Yeah, I mean, I welcome the first minister saying that we need to live with it because it wasn't always her her position. But we live and learn, and this is a difficult thing to get right. But what I don't understand is you know. England's gone a slightly different way. Wales has gone a slightly different way. Scotland's gone a slightly different way. Who is going to be proven right? And I really hate it when we ask politicians, well, here's the figures to say that maybe you've got it wrong and they say, oh, we don't agree with the figures. <laughs> I mean, as as a person with one vote, how on earth do we judge who is right and who is wrong? When, when the people we're holding accountable just say, oh, we don't recognise those numbers. I think well, the problem, I think you hurt it in the head. The problem with today's society is that no one seems to be accountable. No. Right, no. and we need to get back to that. We need to get people to be accountable. But, but Willie, and I blame you for this, let's put the blame right in your shoulders. There is no political um, opposition in Scotland. There's no political. The only people we've got are the media and, you know, this government marginalises the media. Well, we've always said that this is a business programme and we've always tried to stay away from politics. <laughs> on, I would, dis I would disagree. No, no, I'm not <laughs> going to. I actually think that uh, uh, Anna Savar is doing a good job and, he, and it looks like he's he's taking Labour in the in the right way. I would, I would say to you, it is fair to say that there's not been much opposition over the last five or six years, but hopefully the country needs that. No matter where it is, need right? It. We need opposition, and hopefully that uh, it's good to see today that you know that uh, Anas is making a stand saying that he is the boss, you know, and there'll be no um, indie supporting candidates put forward in the next election. So that's 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 good. So I think you no know, that there, there there is better opposition than there has been, and we need it. Mine, just, just mine wasn't a political statement because, yeah. as you know, I'm yeah. not. I'm I'm for Scotland, not for politicians. What I'm saying is that. The, the word, and I, I'm really going to keep on about it on this show, is accountability. Yes. Because somebody makes a decision, then we judge them on that decision. We can't have people going, ah, but we don't recognise those numbers. Yeah. Well, just for clarity, when you said that the media are the opposition, we're not the opposition. We're there to scrutinise and hold government to account. Uh, sometimes that gets us a lot of criticism for those that support the government, but it is our role. Just on that, I've been reading a lot of books over Christmas and New Year, <laughs> nothing else today, Willie. And the one I read was called Empire of Pain, and it's about the opioid Oxycontin and the Sackler family yeah. and the devastation that it caused in America. And there's also a thing on the TV, Dope Sick, it's called. Mm -hmm. And it was the media who actually brought that to light because the politicians, the lawmakers, everybody else. And the other big story, and it's another brilliant book, it's about Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, and the blood testing. And again, that was, I think it was Wall Street Journal, journalist who was doggedly proving that was a scam as well. 
and now she was yeah. found guilty. So the media have a big role to play, Donald. Yeah, but can I just talk about that? And I thought the greatest thing that came out of that was that of all the great stories that you read about, especially about Silicon Valley, where Theranos obviously was, was based, is I loved it when all the journalists were saying, it's just another case of fake it till you make it. And this, unfortunately, that's what's wrong. We hear about the Apples and Googles and Facebook, right? But trust me, there is 50 other businesses over here which are a complete fraud, right? <laughs> the way that hers was. And still to the last, you know, to the last day in court, try to tell the world that, you know, it was our plan, it was our dream to come up, you know, with this new... She'd been selling people. And the way that, again, Tom, but you made a point. She could never have done this if a lot of key people weren't happy getting a cheque to put her to put their name beside her business, right? Ex ex ministers, you know, ex senators, everybody should everybody who was anybody, you know, uh, giving their money and and the the gravitas that she got by getting these people round about her was the thing that was able to sell the con. Right. I thought it was very telling that Rupert Murdoch put in one hundred and twenty five million dollars, but yeah. it was his newspaper that broke the story. So it was, you know... Journalists are trained to be cynical. You've got to be cynical. You always got to look for the angle and find out, you know, what's behind the story. But that's good that you're you're praising it because uh, uh, when talking about scrutiny, if there's one man who certainly scrutinises what the government does, it's Stuart Patrick, who's the chief executive of Glasgow's Chamber of Commerce. And he's here now for his regular nice monthly segue, update. Donald. <laughs> Indeed. So we'll find out what he thinks about the coronavirus restrictions over the festive period. Welcome to the show, Stuart. Happy New Year to you. And a Happy New Year to you too. Thanks, Donald. And um, today, rather than initially reviewing another bumpy Christmas for Glasgow's business community, I want to look ahead into 2022. I hope you're optimistic, Stuart. Economy. There's a bit of good news coming, I good. think, here. Um, so I'm, I'm suggesting there's quite a lot to look forward to. Some of what's to come is already confirmed. Sums on our wish list uh, and would be signs of uh, confident progress. So to start, in the spring, the borough collection relaunches with all three floors open to the visitor, including the museum's stores where you're going to be able to learn what's involved in caring for the part of the collection that's not yet on display. It's almost 40 years since the borough helped begin the cultural reappreciation of our city, which has been so important in Glasgow's transformation. Welcoming an old friend back after five years of restoration is an early boost to the year. Also early in the year, we hope to see confirmation in the Scottish Government's current review of Scottish transport priorities that the Glasgow Metro is firmly at the top of the list. The Chamber has long fought for a railway link from the airport to the city and we fervently hope that the light rail link is included in the Metro plan. That investment is even more important if you consider it would help the airport tackle nearly a third of its surface climate emissions. I would uh, hope we get an even more ambitious commitment to the Metro Vision set out in the 2019 Connectivity Commission report, which we gave to the City Council leader, Susan Aitken, for a, a region-wide light rail network that would match facilities found in cities all across Europe. Another new asset that would benefit from the airport link is the National Manufacturing Institute for Scotland, whose HQ building is being built in the Advanced Manufacturing Innovation District next door to the airport and which will complete this year. Here's a clear sign of the resurgence in Glasgow's engineering credentials, consolidating work that's already been done by the University of Strathclyde on, for example, metallurgy in its Advanced Forming Research Centre. 
We're kind of greedy for new research facilities supporting industry to invest in industries like photonics or precision medicine. So we're looking forward to the opening of the University of Glasgow's Advanced Research Centre on Gilmer Hill. Uh, and we want to see the full funding of the University of Strathclyde's second technology innovation centre in the Glasgow City Innovation District in the Merchant City. Another institution deserving a positive funding announcement in 2022 is the Scottish Events Campus, whose 180 million second expansion phase would upgrade the core conference halls into a world-class, fully sustainable conference venue that would show that COP26 was not a one-off achievement. The airport, the hotel industry and our battered hospitality trade would all be celebrating this one. In the city centre, the pipeline of investment will continue throughout the year, adding to last year's opening of the Barclays offices in Tradeston and HFD Properties Development at 177 Boswell Street for, amongst others, Virgin Money. Osborne's new offices for JP Morgan, Drum Properties' mixed-use scheme at Candle Rigs and Chris Stewart's Love Loan Development on George Street will all be making progress through the year, as will the Moda Living Housing Development on Pitt Street, should be the first example of build-to-rent emerging in the city centre. Beyond 2022, we already know that there will be two major sports events, the UCI World Cycling Championships uh, in 2023 and the World Indoor Athletics Championships in 2024, both demonstrating the value of the Emirates Arena and yet more evidence of the role that the East End is now playing in the city's future. Further investment in the East End in housing and in industrial space and in decontamination of derelict land would seem a fair exchange. But above all, if we're to see a full recovery this year, then there has to be one more big change. Our response to the coronavirus must evolve from crisis, lockdown restrictions and mitigations to the endemic state that means living with the virus and which is now being much more actively discussed this year must see an end to the travel restrictions that are throttling our tourism and aviation industries, to the homeworking default that is undermining our city centre, and to the social distancing measures that have so damaged our hospitality, our cultural and our sporting sectors. If the evidence continues to grow that the health service is coping fine with the consequences of the Omicron variant, surely it becomes much harder to justify imposing restrictions that cause so much economic harm. The future for Glasgow could look positively bright, but so much more so if we can finally leave the coronavirus crisis behind. Here, here. Crikey, Stuart. Well You're in a very, very positive mood. <laughs> um, so let me just burst that wee bubble. Oh. <laughs> the Metro. You know, I think when I first edited the Evening Times, we were talking about that. That was, oh, more than a decade uh, ago. So what's, you know, a rail link to this city? A region-wide light rail network? None of that's really going to happen, is it, Stuart? <laughs> well, it does seem to take a wee while for infrastructure projects to finally get to a, a, a yes uh, rather than a, a, a maybe. But I do think actually one thing that has changed the debate is the uh, climate change crisis because we are now saying quite clearly if we're going to reduce uh, car use by 20%, I think is what the Scottish government has set the target, then the only way to do that, especially in a growing economy if people are getting wealthier, the only way to and therefore could buy more cars. The only way to do that is going to be by offering much better uh, public transport. And part of the reason I suspect that we've spent a good 40 years under-investing in public transport compared to our European competitors is because we take so long 
to come to decisions that are quite should be relatively straightforward about what the public transport offer should be. I think one of the most crucial things that came out of the the early stage in the Scottish Transport Priorities Review last year was the comment that the population for the west of Scotland is expected to grow. That's been a real obstacle, this, the sense that um, population was in decline in the west of Scotland. That's really hampered any ability to get public transport decisions. The fact that it's recognised now that the population is going to grow, that should uh, finally, I think, get us over the line. And working from home has been the sort of default position. You're saying you're challenging that? Yeah. But has it not now become almost established as a sort of routine now for, you know, employers to accept that lots of people will work from home? Will that not undermine the city centre's recovery? Well, I, I don't know. I think it, uh, when I chat to the folks who are running the companies, I think there's a, a, yeah, you're right, a reluctance to go out into the public domain saying, you know, this isn't really working for us. It's not really helping the productivity of our businesses, certainly in the long run. And maybe it's about time we, we started to to call home working what it is, which essentially it's a middle-class benefit. It's, yes. a wee, it's a perk. Oh, uh, that's a nice headline. Thanks you very much, Stuart. <laughs> I, I certainly hope the Inland Revenue don't take that approach. <laughs> don't tax it. Stuart, can I ask you in your summary, you obviously mentioned about the potential investment in the SEC or the campus. One of the, the best examples of public money being spent well is the money spent in the hydro mm -hmm. and what that's done to the GDP of the whole area. I mean, it's lifted finishing. How realistic is it that, um, that Peter Duffy may get the funds that he needs to enhance the, the offer of the campus? Well, I hope it's I hope it's very real, it's realistic. It's probably one of the best economic development projects yeah. going. Yeah. I've not heard any... Uh, even politicians saying, you know, yeah. I don't really fancy this one. And when you actually look at the the numbers for the SEC, you know, for every uh, pound that the SEC gets in income, another three pounds goes to businesses around the wider region. So it has a it's a huge benefit for uh, regional economic development growth. So um, at the end of the day, it's the first. It's the first body that comes forward and says, Do you know, actually, it's time we got this going. Mm -hmm. And we've just been. I don't know whether it's simply because of crisis conditions or whether it's other priorities have come to uh, into play, but we're, we're desperately searching yeah. so for that for, first for institution our to say, go. Should, yeah, we should explain that this was going to be one of the uh, the UK government's first, you know, uh, Scottish office investments, you know, so that uh, this was a kind of UK-led investment. And I believe that the, the people at the Hydro, at SEC, had, you know, led to believe that it had very positive meetings you know, with the minister and with the, the civil servants. So hopefully that uh, we'll get an answer on that very, very quickly. They really need to stop talking about it. That would, that would be a big boost for all the things you say that we're out of the virus. Here we go. That would be a major project to say, yes, we're, we're going ahead. Absolutely. I mean, it would be a st certainly a statement of confidence about the role that Glasgow has been playing in mm -hmm. destination conference activity. And, yeah. um, you know, I know there's a bit of chat about, well, gosh, can you really see that being a part of the future? Surely we're all going to be doing this online. But I think a COP26 proved anything. Uh, it is that you can't get these deals online. The whole process up to COP26 showed you couldn't do it online. You need folks to come together to make yeah. these kinds of deals. Well, we'll certainly keep our fingers crossed because it is a, a superb project and the, the return on it makes it worthwhile. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Kenny Blair, Managing Director of Buzzworks, and don't forget, if you want to join the boardroom, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. 
This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Inspiring advice for Scottish business. Welcome back as we turn the guest spotlight on Kenny Blair, co-founder and MD of Buzzwords. If you want free business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Welcome to the show, Kenny. Hi, Donald. Thank you for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you because you've got an exciting business there, Buzzworks. So do you want to tell our listeners all about it and how it came about? Yeah, well, uh, currently uh, we're in hospitality. Uh, we've got 14 uh, venues, most of them in the west of the, the west of Scotland. Uh, we're now moving into the east. We've got two in the east. Uh, we have uh, just over 550 staff and we're a growing business and we're planning to grow and double the size of the business in the next five years. Even with the COVID restrictions, has that not dampened your plans for expansion? Well, it has dampened the plans uh, temporarily, but uh, we still feel there will always be a place for hospitality. And um, I think good entrepreneurs will always find a way uh, to overcome the, the challenges that are presented with them. So, so Kenny, yours is a, is a family business and we've had plenty of people on the last year um, and the importance of the family business sector in Scotland shouldn't be underestimated. So you've got Colin, your brother, and Alice and your sister. Yeah. So is it all sweetness and light or how does it work? <laughs> well, um, I'm actually the baby of the family. Right. Um, so uh, Colin's 12 years older than me and Alison is uh, 10 years older than me. Oh, she'll hate you saying that. Okay, yes, what's I'm roles? not disclosing just, my age. Just to explain what the roles are in the dynamic so, then. Colin is the chairman, Alison is the operations director and I'm the managing director and have been since 2015. So, yeah, family businesses. Um, I, I'd have to say our experience has been, you know, overwhelmingly good. I think there is no lack of difference of opinion. And I think if you can uh, harness that difference of opinion in a proper manner, get some robust conversations going, I think it, I think it helps a, a, a business. I, I think it's a, a positive. As long as any disagreements over decisions don't spill out outside the boardroom. And I think we've managed to do that really well. Uh, in fact, just earlier this week, uh, we had a very vociferous debate. Right. Um, <laughs> but we had a laugh and a joke 10 minutes later. Okay. So I think we've been successful in managing to do that. And I, th I think it's been great to be held to account properly and honestly with your uh, siblings. And I also think one our business has been on the go for uh, decades. But I think having a family business, the strength that gives you and adversity is just fantastic. I think we've really come together as a family throughout some of the hardest times in, in business. And business has been a, and is a roller coaster for many, many businesses and many families. Do you think that ability to have a boisterous debate, shall we call it, with your siblings is something that's common to all family businesses or do you think it's unique because of the types of individuals you are? Um, I don't. I'm not aware of many other family businesses that don't have some form of uh, difference of opinion, let's say. 
Um, I have heard instances where families can reconcile the differences. Um, but I think you've got to embrace the difference of opinion and be able to harness that and then to move to be able to move on from that once the, the meeting or the, the board meeting or whatever is is uh, over. Is that a cultural thing within the business? Because you're renowned for the culture that operates within Buzzwords. Um, I believe that uh, you've been part of the <coughs> Sunday Times 100 best UK companies to work for uh, in the last five years. You've got that accolade. So is that down to the culture? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's down to the culture. I mean, that we're very, very proud of being uh, in that list. A wee company from, you know, based in Kilmarnock in Scotland, you know, up against all these other uh, UK companies. The, the, the Sunday Times... No, you don't have to mention them again. <laughs> okay. The 100 best companies. Um, <laughs> we've won a few awards in our time, but the reason that that award is special is because it is given on an anonymous survey of your workforce. So there are no judges. The judges are your people. So to get into that uh, list is really prestigious. And yeah, I mean, it's down to down to culture. It's about... How how you how you treat your people, how you put them first, the way in which you prioritise what you do in business. And, and Kenny, you you talked about an ambitious growth plan. How how are you going to keep the culture as you grow? Because that's that's something that all scale up businesses are really striving to understand. And just for our for our listeners, if you've got any tips on this, uh, yes. Um, something we think about uh, quite clearly. I think when we when we moved from the west of the country through to the east, um, we took quite a lot of our established people with us uh, and what you would call culture carriers. So those people who we trust as part of our culture, they are our culture, they went to that new business to launch it. Um, and I remember being at a scale-up um, uh, presentation by Entrepreneurial Scotland and I remember one of the top tips was you've got to go to grow and go to grow for us was to get out of Ayrshire to the east uh, and we knew that we'd have to do that so we had to take our culture with us we had to take our people with us um, so we had a lot of people staying over in the east coast and travelling through there and uh, now that we've proven that we can do it 75 or 80 miles from our base I don't see any reason why we can't do it 150 miles from our base. So, Kenny, for the listeners, t tell us the name of some of your places. The the one the 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 venues that the listeners will probably know the best are the the three Scots. We've got one in Troon, one in South Queensferry, and one in Largs. Um, we've also got Lido in Troon. We've got Vicks and the Vine in, in uh, Presswick, which is our longest established. Um, we've got the Duke in Kilmarnock, and I'll not name them all, yeah. uh, Willie, but, you know, that's that's a selection of them. Yeah. And you say that was the first, the one that you've gotten? The, the business history, uh, if I give you very quickly, uh, the foundations of the business were in 1978. I was very young at the time. Uh, my brother, who's a bit older than me, had experience in hospitality. My dad was a builder. We lived in East Kilbride. My dad always wanted a pub. Colin had some experience. And they sold their house in East Kilbride and moved to Kilwinning to a wee pub in that Ayrshire town, sandwiched in between a, a bookies and a fish and chip shop. <laughs> and I remember it really well. It was part of my upbringing. But I mean, what lessons did you think, did you learn 
from those early days that have helped you? I think the principles are much the same. You know, you create a nice environment for people to spend time. You create a buzz through the energy, through the people, through the atmosphere. Um, and, you know, that that is just... In, in hospitality, in my opinion, it's about how, how you get made to feel. And you can get made to feel that by the people that serve you, the atmosphere of the venue, the, the food, the drinks... Um, and I think those principles remain true. In fact, we, we thought about that when we were thinking about, you know, the reason the business exists, when we were thinking back to those early days. It's the same principles then as it is now. Um, so I, I think we learnt that from, from those early days. I mean, that pub was a fantastic success. Those were the days when the licensing laws meant that you had to shut in the afternoon and shut early. And it was the first pub ever to have all-day opening in Cowering. And I remember my dad had to stand at the front door on a Saturday afternoon, and it was one in, one out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, it's a great bit know, of marketing, but calling that chip shop and bookies in that pub the strip in Cowering. <laughs> <laughs> well, as they say, if you can make it in Cowering, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> so how did the business evolve from there? Yeah, so um, that was a traditional pub. And uh, the next step then was to a wine bar, uh, you know, in the sort of mid-80s. And then we moved on to a cafe bar and another wine bar. And we gradually evolved from mainly drink to 50-50 food and drink to way more food. And really we're ostensibly a restaurant business now that operates bars. It's been a roller coaster. I mean, we've had, we've had success. We've had failure. And I think the failure stands you in great stead, you know, for, for the future. And I, I wouldn't want to have changed it. And can, you, can you just talk us through, because when we get people on, people who are listening to the show are maybe going through a difficult time. And I always think it's good when people are successful that they talk about some of the more challenging times. So it gives people, all oh, right, so you've had hard times as well, you know. So could, could, could you give us an example, Kenny? One of the toughest times, I think, the, the, the most recent uh, toughest times we had was uh, back in 07, 08, during the, the banking crisis, when all of a sudden, having property or hospitality went right out of fashion with banks. And we went... Everything <laughs> <laughs> went out of fashion with banks, Gary. <laughs> we, went, we went from the, the good guys in the bank to all of a sudden the bad guys overnight. We couldn't understand it. Mm -hmm. um, but we... We knuckled down, and this is where, you know, the, the strength of the family came in. Um, we, we knuckled down, we cut costs, we put our backs to the wall, and we, we got through it, and we, you know, we robustly dealt with the banks. Um, it, was a, it was a great learning exercise. I learned a lot about, uh, you know, dealing with banks at that time, uh, and the, the bank we dealt with shall remain nameless. <laughs> You talked about that transition from bar into sort of wine bar, cafes, and now mainly you say it's restaurants that you're running. Where do you see the future of hospitality and has COVID impacted on what the public wants from bars and restaurants? I'm not a great believer in the in the, the theory that it has impacted. It's impacted in the short term, but I don't think in the medium to long term um, it's it's going to have an impact. I think as long as humans exist, there will be a need for hospitality venues. Uh, I think the industry may shrink a little. Um, I think I, I I I think that it's going to get better paid. It's going to be better paying conditions. 
there's going to be better training, there's going to be more opportunities for career uh, in, in the industry. Um, I think we're going to have to come up with new ways of being efficient. We've got a, a, a challenge coming with, uh, you know, the inflation, inflationary pressures we've got coming ahead. Uh, and I, I, I think that overall, it's probably going to be a good thing for hospitality. Kenny, can I ask, my sister-in-law who runs a small hotel that we've got is saying that she definitely sees that um, people's timings for coming out to eat have changed. That, you know, she's saying that we're still you know, quite busy, but people are coming out earlier and going home earlier. Are you finding that? I We haven't found a huge shift in that in our business, yeah. uh, Willie. Um, you know, the, the, the evenings are still... Uh, Buoyant. I mean, during the week, that is the trend anyway. Yeah. But at the weekends, I think, you know, if you can create a, an atmosphere, a buzz, that an energy yeah. that want that, that that is desirable, I think that keeps people in. Yeah. Um and I I, I think, you know, if you if you're thinking about energy in a in a restaurant, you know, if you can just get one more drink out of people and get them to stay on, but they've they've got to really feel it. I'm going to get rid of her. That means obviously she's not got that. <laughs> oh, I was dear, very Kenny, diplomatic. You're yeah. responsible for this. So, so Kenny, you've you've talked about it's 550 staff um, today. So that's going to double as well. So how are you going to attract and retain the talent? I know you. This is something that's really close to your heart. Is making hospitality a positive career choice. So, how are you going to differentiate? your business and attract the best talent out there? Um, well, I think uh, there's, a, there's a few things. Um, uh, let's start with recruitment um, and we'll talk about retention. Um, I think with recruitment, I mean, it's well known there is a, there is a crisis in many industries. And in fact, I was in, I was in holiday. Uh, and I know in America they've got a recruitment crisis yeah. in hospitality. So it's not just the UK. It's, it's not just uh, Brexit. Uh, in terms of recruitment, we're changing the way that we recruit. Um, we have just done a, a major campaign on recruitment on TikTok right. um, to attract younger people. We've made it so simple that all you need to do to apply is write, I need a job on TikTok <laughs> for an application. Um, so that's the first thing. So we're looking at ways to make it easy and, and frictionless for people to uh, apply for a job. And then when it comes to uh, retention I think the thing about hospitality is it's not it doesn't necessarily have to be a career for everyone mm -hmm. I think hospitality is a positive on many people's CVs we've had many people who work for us who have been on or been well they've been studying to be lawyers doctors accountants uh, and we've only got them for a certain period of time and you've just got to accept that it won't be a career for everyone so you've got to make it attractive how do you make it attractive? You make it a nice place to work. You give them good training. You you look after them. You listen to them. You pay them well. In terms of career, being a growing business gives us an advantage because one of our core values is grow forward together. So there are opportunities for people to grow with our business. As we expand, they can expand their role. And uh, we've got many examples of people who have started off. Um, we've got a couple of guys that started off as kitchen porters and now head chefs. One of them is, is running, you know, one of Ayrshire's busiest restaurants he's the head chef of. I mean, he's an example of what can happen. One of the things about hospitality is it's one of the best industries to go from bar to boardroom. 
Right. Like, I speak to many people, many of my peers up and down the country, and um, I'll speak to them and I'll ask them, how did you start? Well, I was at uni and I worked in a bar and I quite liked it and I was quite good at it. And I get made into a manager and I was good at that. And then all of a sudden I get promoted and promoted and here I am running this business. So I, I think for those that enjoy it and like it, I think there's lots of opportunities for hospitality. And and you as the entrepreneur in charge, how do you keep in touch? How do you keep yourself in with the latest trends about the business? How do you keep a network that's keeping you fresh and motivated? Because I know that's something that's close to your heart as well. Absolutely. Well, I'm, a, I'm an avid reader. I'll read business books, not to, not to regurgitate them all all the time, but to take the best parts from them. I'm also in a, a, in a network called Vistage. Vistage, right. Yes. Um, I've heard a couple of your other guests. I think with the lady from Little... Chauffeur yes, drives. Heather, yeah, she's in my group. All oh, right, okay. So Vistage is, uh, is an organi- a peer network where we've got chief execs and senior people from all different types of uh, industries, nobody from the same industry as you. And uh, we meet once a month. We can get advice from our peers. Uh, we get world-class speakers in to speak to us. Great. Another thing is um, I've been over to New York. Um, there's a, a sort of guru over there uh, who's a restaurateur called Danny Mayer um, and I did a, a three day course over at his business right. uh, called Creating Raves <laughs> uh, did that in 2019 in fact my brother Colin gave me his book many moons ago it's called Setting the Table and that was really the start of us starting to think about you know enlightened hospitality putting our people first before our customers right and i went over there um, and did a three-day course and found out exactly how their business ticks and uh, that was fantastic i mean danny uh, danny says that hospitality occurs when something happens for you service happens to you right. service is a monologue hospitality is a dialogue wow you get service from a machine <laughs> so you know I, there was a lot of learnings there seen behind the scenes in some of his restaurants was he the guy behind Shake Shack he was yes right, okay. and his his great he, he was inspired by Ray Kroc who who wanted to make a Big Mac and fries the same in New York as it was in Brazil winning <laughs> yes winning absolutely strip. <laughs> Danny Mayer wanted to make the culture feel the same whether you worked in a Shake Shack in New York or China or the right. Middle East. Wow. So that was very inspiring. Got to meet him and speak to him and uh, that that was fantastic. There was a huge amount of learnings there. So I think, you know, I've got a bit of a growth mindset. I like to look outside our business to see what's out there. You know, I think if you keep your eyes and your ears open and it absorb all the good stuff, it's all out there. And I think that would be a top tip for everyone is to just to... You never le- stop learning. Never stop learning. Keep listening and and learn. Find somebody who's good and chap the door. Aye, chap the door. I'm, I'm finding now that hospitality, especially now in, in food, that the more and more you can attract young people with new ideas and young ideas. You know, the, the way that, that guys would market something in Glasgow City Centre now for opening a new restaurant and Uniclub is totally alien to how James Mortimer would have done it 20 years ago. You know, it's, it's a completely different world. And I think that what you need to do now is understand that new young market and how they get their news. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the whole TikTok thing was alien yeah. to... 
you know, anyone over 30 <laughs> is probably yeah. a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to TikTok. Yeah. And I mean, marketing and Instagram now is just incredible. I thought TikTok was a chat line for Celtic supporters. <laughs> Oh, oh you know, goodness. we were doing so well. You had to well. get it in, Donald. You had to get it I was, in, I was uh, <laughs> in, endorsing Kenny's point. <laughs> <laughs> you could be a dinosaur. No, I think, Kenny, I think you've provided a lot of inspiration for people listening in and some great pointers. So thank you for joining the show. After the break, we tell the story of Equis. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. By business... For business. Welcome back for the latest of our brilliant series on Great Scots as we tell the story of Equis. The Equis story dates back to 1915 when Pietro Equi and his uncle Dante left Tuscany to seek their fortune. Dante ended up in New York, but Pietro settled in Hamilton, South Lanarkshire, where he started his first Equis cafe at Peacock's Cross in 1922. Pietro was keen to bring a taste of his homeland to Scotland and set out to emulate the delicious gelatos of his homeland. He would buy milk and double cream from a local farm, heat the mix himself and leave it outside to cool before it was churned by hand and then frozen. The product very quickly became a success and his business was off and running. As told by current owner and grandson David, he stocked only vanilla ice cream, but his reputation for delicious desserts quickly grew, making him one of the best-known gelato makers in the west of Scotland, with people travelling miles just for a cone. In 1964, taken over by one of Pietro's sons, Robert, who oversaw developments such as a move to new premises with increased production capacity, developments which would take the business to even greater heights, the Equis Ice Cream Parlour was born, a hot food and takeaway establishment that still exists today. Through the years, Pietro, Robert and David have all shared one common goal, commitment to quality. In an interview in 2018, David explained, Our main point of difference is the sheer quality of our ice cream. Where possible, we only use the freshest local ingredients or the best ingredients from around the world. For example, pistachios from Bronte, Sicily and Madagascan vanilla. The milk is from a dairy farm, which you can see from our office window. The tablet is from an award-winning confectioner in Glasgow and the caramel shortcake is from Kerr's Bakery in Motherwell. The family's dedication to quality has seen the business receive numerous accolades in recent years, both home and abroad. In 2017, the business won six Great Taste Awards, three UK Ice Cream Championship trophies and finally were named Food and Drink Company of the Year at the Lanarkshire Business Awards. A major milestone also took place in 2019 when Equis proudly fulfilled their first ever export to the USA, Texas to be precise, with the brand continuing to grow in popularity across the pond. From humble beginnings of Pietro proudly hand-churning gelato from his beloved Italy, to the success of the awards of today, Equis go from strength to strength and is now one of the most recognisable retail brands in Scotland today. Scots on the Go Radio Business Show. Another fantastic business, and everybody loves ice cream, don't they, Willie? Well, I can certainly say that uh, I know Equis very well. In fact, they're responsible probably for me being a 38 waist and a trouser. Um, <laughs> when I moved to Lancashire, I think I was only a 32. But no, fantastic business, fantastic family business. Obviously very well known in Lancashire, but now through the west of Scotland, and obviously as we hear now uh, in America, but um, a great success story and a wonderful product. I can I can absolutely recommend it to anybody who likes ice cream, especially vanilla ice cream. I would have loved to have asked, from Tuscany, you choose Hamilton. 
How does that come about, Donald? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with Hamilton, please, yeah, for those listening in from that well, area. Well, it certainly wasn't because the boat landed there. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, this is one of my favourite parts of the show, hearing about the enterprising people coming to Scotland, making their home here and making a major success of their business. And I'm definitely going to go this weekend and get a 99. Yeah, they, they opened, you know, they, they expanded their offer. You know, they opened uh, a few nice restaurants, fish and chips, famous fish and chips, and uh, then obviously the, the, the ice cream. But uh, I don't think there's anyone here, in, 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 especially in Lancashire, uh, in the west of Scotland, that's not heard of Equis. Fantastic. And now they're exporting to the US. Yeah. That's incredible. Who would have thought that? Yeah, Texas. Really? So it must be steak and vanilla ice cream on the menu. <laughs> Longhorn. Ice cream. Where's your favourite? What's your favourite ice cream parlour? For me, it would definitely be Equis in Hamilton. That's the, the, the place I started going years ago. There's, there's a few good uh, places, you know, here in Glasgow, you know, the Kings Park Cafe, Queen's Park mm. Cafe. But uh, Equis is up there with the best of them. Tom? In Ayrshire? Well, there's a wee place in Troon, and I'm trying to remember its name, and it's it's the old-fashioned, you can get in and get a fish tea, and, you know, and you get the ice cream as well. And um, I always remember the guy, it was Togs, because he, he had a light blue E-type Jaguar. Togs 61 was his number plate. So that was always an inspiration to me. I know it's a wee bit away from one in town, but what was the very famous one down in Largs? Nardini's. 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 Yeah. yeah, very yeah. good. Yeah. Still good. I'm almost getting close to and get that pensioner rate when you can go in and get your fish <laughs> chips ice cream as well <laughs> for some ridiculously cheap price there. Pirelli used to make good ice cream as well. Paisley. <laughs> yeah. Used to deliver ginger to them as a boy. Sorry for the listeners. That's lemonade. Ginger. <laughs> well, I think we could talk all day about ice cream, but unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. But in the meantime, we welcome your suggestions to help us improve the show. If you have any feedback or want to know more about how you can get involved, visit thisisgo.co.uk. And don't forget, you can put your business questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join us on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.